0: Welcome to the Scholar's Attic, an audio archive of our tour through world history, specifically the modern age, from the French Revolution to current events of 2021. Welcome to the Attic. The following class was originally recorded on March 26, 2021. For this class, we were privileged to have Dr. Robert Schaefer, Professor of Political Science at the University of West Georgia. Dr. Schaefer helped us unpack one of the 20th century's most remarkable, misunderstood, and underappreciated moments, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letters from a Birmingham Jail. In this lecture, Dr. Schaefer explains the events leading up to the letter, King's staunch insistence on nonviolent protests, and his worldview that formed those ideals, as well as the connecting philosophical questions and theological answers that King laid down in his letters. In a world that currently points to King as an inspiration for violent or coercive protest methods, it is more important than ever that the Reverend's original message is understood the way he intended. To do this, Dr. Schaefer takes us to the context of the letters themselves, when After his 1963 arrest for protesting without a permit, King answered public criticism and accusations from solitary confinement in the margins of a smuggled newspaper. Due to current time restraints, this episode is largely unedited, so there may be interruptions, extended pauses, or other anomalies that I usually try to edit out. A cleaned-up version, including the student question and answer session that followed the lecture, will be made available later. But for now, I invite you to soak in what Dr. Schaefer has to say about the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., his letters, and the divine providence that shaped this remarkable man and this moment in history. Let's listen in.
1: One, don't torture students. I'm going to try (laughs) to adhere to that rule. Okay. Are you ready? I'm going to be forthright. Sure, I can show up, make a few comments, but then I was rereading Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail and thinking, oh my God, how do you do 2,500 years of history? Not in one hour or two hours, but two weeks. You can't do it. We're going to touch this. We're going to cruise across the surface, so to speak okay and feel free later just to raise your hand ask questions do whatever you want with that said can you all hear me okay with that said I want to begin with scripture first Peter chapter 12 chapter 2 are you ready Peter respect the authorities whatever their level exercise your freedom by serving God not by breaking the rules treat everyone you meet with dignity Love your spiritual family. Revere God. Respect the government. That's 1 Peter. Nonetheless, Martin Luther King, April 12, 1963, found himself in jail for breaking the rules, for breaking the law. Why? He and others had planned a demonstration in Birmingham protesting segregation. And You're already familiar with some of this I Zoom. What Martin Luther King did, Reverend King, was, with others, decide to break the law. And he found himself in jail. And I want to add this. Good Friday, uh, the darkest day of the liturgical year, King finds himself in jail by himself. He's not allowed to see his wife, who just gave birth to their fourth child. He's not allowed to talk to a lawyer. He's not allowed to talk to anyone. They put him in solitary confinement on Good Friday. What happens after he lands in jail for staging this demonstration. They were just walking through the streets of Birmingham without an ordinance, without a permit. That's all they were doing. Uh, But he finds himself in jail alone, and someone brings in a newspaper discreetly. They sneak it in. He's got nothing else. And on the front page of the Birmingham News, uh, the same day he was arrested, was a statement by eight uh, clergymen uh, in in Alabama. Uh, There was a rabbi who helped co-write the statement, two Catholic bishops, Protestant bishops, and these were (coughs) colleagues of Martin Luther King. I want to stress that. People who agreed with him that segregation in Alabama and throughout the United States was fundamentally wrong. These were his colleagues, fellow clergymen. And what they did is they published a statement in the Birmingham News. I'm stressing this. They did not come see him and say, oh, we kind of disagree with you. They did not Call him. They didn't send him a letter. They published a statement in the Birmingham News, severely criticizing their colleague Martin Luther King, severely criticizing him. They called him an agitator, an outsider, and a lawbreaker, and everything he did was wrong. I'm stressing this. Good Friday, the darkest day of the liturgical year. M. L. K. finds himself in jail, and he sees in the Birmingham News a really critical statement. He's by himself, no one else. Let me just read a little bit from the statement. You can find this online. However, this, this is the clergy. We are now confronted by a series of demonstrations by some of our Negro citizens, directed and led in part by outsiders. <laughs> Troublemakers, that's okay.
2: <laughs>
1: i repeat that. Directed and led in part by outsiders. King, of course, was from far away. He We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. And that's what he had. I could go on, but I won't. What King does, and it's really interesting, he's got nothing else except this newspaper. Thank you, Miss Bowl. Oh, you're welcome. Whether they're agitators, so we just have to go with that. What King does. On Good Friday, April 12th, with the newspaper in hand, is he begins to respond to the critics, his colleagues. He calls them men of goodwill. He begins to respond in the margins of the newspaper. Um, and he begins writing and writing and writing. And of course there's not enough room on the newspaper. And an orderly, someone like King sneaks in some paper. And what King does is begins begins to uh, write what I'm going to call, here's the fancy word, an apologia. And I'll explain that word in a moment, Uh, a defense. He writes an apologia, and his defense goes on for 7,000 words. And his defense, letter from Birmingham jail, will be published in a number of journals throughout the United States in the months to come. And later that fall, in 1918, listen to me, 1963, He will republish it in book form. Uh, But either way, this 7,000-word apologia is a response not only to the eight clergymen, but to other Americans who were sitting back watching this whole business of segregation and protest and all that. It's also a response to us in this room. And that's why I'm here, because what King is really doing is talking to us in this room. Um, And just to cheer you up, I have brought Xerox's handouts. Uh, would you mind? All right, by the way, if we can just hand these out. I you know, no, we're not going to read through the whole thing today, but I wanted you to hold on to something so when you get bored, you can just start flipping through the letter. Um, either way, he begins, he begins his response. Um, again, it goes on forever. Uh, but let me just jump ahead. Oh. I love the lights in here. It's great to see. Um, in fact, I'll wait till you hand that out. I'll give you all a moment. You know we're not reading through everything.
0: Oh yes, no, you're fine. I just. I forgot to hit record on this
1: phone. Oh, so my opening statement yeah, is again? Uh, no, no, you don't. Okay. <laughs> You're fine. Okay. He covers a remarkable amount of territory, and what I want to do is just address some of the issues and see if we can make sense of the big picture. He begins, this is, uh, I presume, page one. We, I'm sorry. Let me look. Uh, I'm actually on page three. Let me look. Make sure we've got this. Yes, page three, the very top of the page. It begins, you express a great deal of anxiety. Just nod if you see that. I'm going to jump around just because I have to. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we, are so, since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, it is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may ask, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. That's what I ask that you let it sink in. I'll repeat that king, by himself, in jail, is arguing that an unjust law is no law at all. The big question is, is he simply making an assertion? Is it just his opinion? And he goes on to explain in this lengthy letter his defense, or explain why he argues that he is morally obliged, and I'm stressing that word, morally obliged to break the law. Not to cause violence or pick up guns, but to uh, demonstrate without a permit. Uh, there, that's the opening speech. You still with me? Here's what he's going to do. I'm going to make it as simple as possible. He is going to give a defense of his actions, and he's going to do so in light of the Western tradition, in light of the political, philosophical, and theological strands of thought that he inherited, that we in this room have inherited. I'll repeat that. The political Philosophical and theological strands of thought. He's going to cover in this letter 2,500 years of history. He's going to tie it all together and defend his actions about breaking uh, that or ignoring that ordinance. Okay. Here's where it gets wonderfully complicated, but I have to do it because he starts it. It's not my fault. (laughs) Um, But I'll just throw this out page where are we page two and yes I freely acknowledge I have to jump around page two the second formal paragraph it begins you may well ask you see that why direct action why sit-ins marches and so forth is it negotiation a better path and he goes on talking about how negotiation hadn't worked yet and so the demonstrations without the permit were necessary. In the middle of that paragraph, he says, and this is what I want to focus on, just as Socrates felt it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. Whew, a lot going on there. What famous philosopher does he make reference to? I'm picking on you. Socrates. Socrates. Did you all, have you all studied Socrates much at Lighthouse? Do you know anything about him? Antipodes. Yeah, yeah, OK. <laughs> I want to make this as clear as I can. Uh, and I'll repeat myself probably three times. What King is going to do is talk at length about Socrates. He mentions him a number of times, and so I have to talk about Socrates. What King is going to then do is tie Socrates to Revelation, Christianity. And then what King is going to do is tie Socrates, Revelation, to the American Constitution and the Declaration, and then tie it all to Birmingham in 1963. So you see what I'm getting at? He's covering 2,500 years of intellectual thought. He's going to bring it all together in this Short letter. Um, Socrates. Now I want. To, it's important to start with Socrates. Uh, King uses the word gadfly. That was the word to describe Socrates. I'm only going to pick on you once. Whatever happened to Socrates? Do you remember? Okay. Did he live a long, happy life? Well, yeah, he did. What was the outcome? How did he end up dying? Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Suicide by drinking.
1: He was, uh, he was executed. I need to talk about Socrates for a moment because King is going to compare himself to Socrates. That's why I'm doing this. Socrates died in the year 399 BC after he was put on trial in Athens. And I have to stress, Athens was really a great city in terms of culture, art, and trade. It was the center of the universe. It was also a, a democracy. And what happens is Socrates, who never had a real job, and he gave talks to 18-year-olds all the time, um, what Socrates is going to do is be charged with various crimes. He's going to be charged with breaking the law. That's why King is comparing himself to Socrates. And I need to focus on Socrates because he keeps resurfacing in this letter. Socrates was accused of a number of different crimes. Number one, corrupting the youth but also too of impiety, not adhering to or believing in the gods of the city. And I need to talk about the first. Socrates, was Socrates guilty of corrupting the youth and in his defense, written by Plato, he essentially says, yeah, I'm really guilty. The defense of Socrates is entitled The Apology of Socrates and the fancy Greek word is Apologia. What's going to happen is Socrates will die, and I'll explain why in a moment. His student, Plato, uh, is not going to give up and begins writing for the rest of his life trying to explain what Socrates had done in his 70 years of life. So the Apology, I strongly recommend you look at it someday. No other reason, it's short. (laughs) It's not like The Republic, that great book that's like 500 pages. But in the, the Apology, Socrates is accused of corrupting the youth. What that means, in really simple terms, is that Socrates called into question uh, the opinions held by his fellow Athenians regarding tradition. Meaning Socrates didn't pick up a gun or start a revolution. What he said was, we Athenians hold certain opinions about the economy, about war, about trade, about slaves, about women. And what Socrates wanted to know is where do we get those opinions from regarding right and wrong, that's the key, right and wrong, and are those opinions correct? And all he did, I say all he did, what Socrates did for most of his adult life was wander around Athens talking to people, 18-year-olds, politicians, old people, uh, asking their opinions and trying to figure out, here's the punchline, can we humans understand uh, that which is right and that which is wrong? Can we understand anything about the universe? That's what he kept wondering about. Or do we live simply according to opinion? You got that? Oh, smile a bit. Okay, I'll repeat that. He wanted to know whether we human beings could actually understand anything. Yes, we know that there's, what, 15 of us in this room. We know that you've already yawned three times and are falling asleep. But can we understand uh, anything about women's rights, about the rights of minorities, blacks, Asians? Can we understand anything about taxes, government? Or is it just opinion? And Socrates, at no point through rocks, what he simply said was, uh, the Athenians and people in general tend to hold opinions that they inherit, and he wanted to know whether we can go beyond those opinions. Um, and he did it first, and this is the second charge impiety. He did it by questioning the poets. Y'all are familiar with Homer? Just say yes. <laughs> uh, of course, in Greece, there are many, many great poets, and the poets were the, were the true lawmakers then. And I'm going to assert, are you ready, Ms. Goff? today still, poets for the lawmakers, indirectly. What Socrates does is he picks a fight with Homer, who's long gone, and essentially says, Homer's description of the gods, uh, Zeus, Hera, uh, uh, Zeus, Athena, Poseidon, do you believe in Zeus? Wait,
2: sorry,
1: what? Do you believe in Zeus?
2: I don't
1: think so. <laughs> so I have to pick on you, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> What Socrates does is he questions the poet's description of the gods, because we humans are always animated or moved by our understanding of God or the gods and what Socrates says is that the description of the poets, excuse me, of the gods by the poets was fundamentally wrong, and he takes issue with the poets, and I could go on for days and days, and I won't do that, Miss Earl, but what Socrates does in the apology.
2: Oh, I'm fine.
1: now one of us would drink hemlock (laughs) one of the students would what he does is say before we can uh, live just lives good lives and this is important happy lives we have to understand something about the universe and therefore we have to understand something about God and he actually uses the word uh, one word God single God in the Republic Um, and so he wants to know is there a God can we comprehend what God is like um and that's what gets him in trouble with uh, the, uh, his fellow Athenians, because they were saying, you're an atheist, you don't believe in the gods of the city. And he didn't. Um, okay, that's the background, and the first thing that King does is compare himself to Socrates. Socrates appears in trial in the year 399 B.C. I'll buy you a box of Dunkin' Donuts, if you can tell me how many people were in the jury. Just make up a number. I don't know who you are, but it's 42. I like that. I would have said like 12. We're both wrong. No donuts for you. 500 men. Oh, I'm sorry. Your hand went up. What were you going to say? I was just going to say one. Okay, I like that guess. 500 fellow Athenians were on trial. I mean, we're in the jury. And they listened to the charges leveled against Socrates. They listen to his defense, and again, what he essentially said was, yeah, <laughs> so what? I'm going to keep doing this. You will not stop me. He thumbs his nose at them. Well, guess what? They find him guilty, they put him in jail, and they make, drink, make him drink hemlock. And By the way, this is just coffee, so. Um, okay, Socrates dies, but what the discussion he started continued on. Uh, for centuries and centuries, and I'm going to say this, uh, for those of you who are stuck in classes entitled, I don't know, Antiquity, Modernity, English, History, you can thank Socrates for, to a certain extent, because what he's going to do is begin the conversation about what a good education should be. So if I drone on and on and start driving you crazy, blame Socrates. Okay, Socrates begins this conversation, and I would love to continue talking about Socrates at length, but we don't have time. But King compares himself to Socrates, and one of the things that Socrates does, and I'm leading up to a punchline, is he essentially says that we humans, through our intellect, which is godlike, we're not gods, but godlike, can understand the nature of things. So put that in your memory bank. We humans can understand the nature of things. And that's a big, broad, philosophic statement, but it's important. The nature of things. Um, there's no way to adequately get through all this now. I'll just give you some examples. Uh, in terms of the physical world, there's a certain nature that we all agree upon. The Earth revolves around what? Good. And no one, well, except him, is going to disagree with you. you. know, There's a nature about the relationship between the planets, um, the nature of other things. You're still awake. I'm going to show this to a Look, Zoom people. What's this? A pen. A pen. What's it for? Writing. Right. And you can articulate that. You can make sense of it. Um, If I were to walk up to my coffee cup and say, What's this? The coffee cup is going to say what? Nothing. Nothing. If I were to put the pen here, listen carefully, and it stood up and started singing and dancing, what would you do? (laughs) I would be shocked. I would run. I would get out of here. (laughs) This has a certain nature. This thing here has a certain nature, it's a computer. Uh, a cat adopted us a year ago, his name is Fred. Mm-hmm. Fred has a certain nature. Fred doesn't sing and dance, he eats and he sleeps. And when he's done sleeping, he eats. And he, okay, my point is, cats have a nature. What Socrates wanted to know is, what is human nature? Can we understand ourselves in terms of our physicality and our intellect? Okay, That's the big conversation, and a number of schools will be opened after he's executed uh, throughout Greece, uh, ultimately in Rome, throughout all of Europe, and eventually a place called the United States, meaning people continue the conversation that he started. Why am I stressing nature? You'll see why in a moment. I have to come back to that later, but I want to jump ahead really quickly. King is in jail. He makes reference to Socrates, a troublemaker, But King also makes reference, and I'm just going to just state this, and you can find it later, to St. Augustine. Remember that line? An unjust law is no law at all. That's really important. Um, St. Augustine uh, wrote in the 4th century, the 5th century, he was a bishop in North Africa, a Catholic bishop. He was alive, paying attention to what was going on in the Roman Empire as it was falling apart. Rome was falling apart. The barbarians were invading, and a lot of people in Rome, which was the center of the universe, I have to stress that. I mean, Rome was really big and powerful, and a lot of people in Rome and elsewhere were arguing. Oh my God, the barbarians are here! They're invading, and it's all because of Christianity. Revelation has screwed us up from top to bottom. This is what the critics said, not me. What Rome, what Augustine does, the bishop is he decides to write a defense. There's that word again. Explaining that Christianity, revelation is the solution. It's not the problem. And he ends up writing a really, really famous work entitled The City of God. You got it. Extremely Influential. uh, And uh, in it, he talks about many different things, but uh, we're not going to go through The City of God But what Augustine does is he, like uh, his fellow theologians and philosophers, talk about nature again. And are you ready? Natural law. And that's what I want to focus on today. So I've touched upon Socrates for a moment, St. Augustine, uh, who's going to essentially argue that we are citizens in two different worlds. But our job in this physical world is to imitate Uh, Jesus our job is to love thy neighbor you've heard that before right and if our job our responsibility as humans is to love thy neighbor the fancy word is I know you know this agape do y'all talk about that do you pronounce it as agape or agape
0: agape is how I always heard it
1: I was trained in biblical Greek don't ask why but either way unconditional love. If in fact that's our responsibility, unconditional love, however you pronounce it, uh, then we are morally obliged to look at unjust laws and change them. What's the punchline? Socrates, the pagan, uh, St. Augustine, the Christian, begin tying these, uh, these two traditions are tied together, and Augustine points to natural law. I'm jumping way ahead. You want my coffee? I want to jump ahead to the year, uh, to the 13th century. I'm moving ahead quickly. St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, another really important uh, Christian theologian, is going to, living in Italy, he stops what he's doing and looks backwards at Augustine, Socrates, everything else. And uh, Aquinas just writes like crazy. But what he does in the Summa Theologica, the great theology, is he clearly articulates four different types, of, natu- uh, four different types of, of law. And I'm going to ask you to write this down or pretend that you care. I'll repeat this. What Aquinas is going to do, echoing Socrates, Augustine, St. Paul, is argue that there are four different types of law. I'm going to let you write that. Let me get my hemlock here. Just trust me. This will all will end up tied together in the Birmingham jail. It will. How do it get to be alone fifteen? Some people talk too much. Okay. Saint Thomas Aquinas, thirteenth century, articulates how many types of law? Four. Four. Yeah. Just write these down, and next year I'll come back and explain what I know about them. Which is not a lot. According to Thomas, and according to, yeah, according to Thomas, uh, there are four ty- different types of law. Uh, one is eternal law, eternal. There's no simple explanation of eternal law, but they're the laws that rule the universe, the physical universe. And I already made some, exa- some reference to them. The sun revolves, yeah. The sun revolves around the earth, right, or something like that. Cats meow. But when Thomas talks about eternal law, he's talking about a universe that's created by uh, a God. I mean, there, the universe exists. There has to be a reason why it came into existence, and if there's a reason, then we humans can, to a certain extent, with our intellect, understand what it is. So I'll repeat that: we can look out the window. The sun came out just for a moment as you smile we can look out the window make sense of the as best as we can the physical universe and then begin to begin to figure out why it exists why uh, we exist and then turn around and figure out how we're supposed to live if I were to tell you um, I've been picking on him all day if he starts meowing and climbing a tree and scha- uh, chasing squirrels what do you think he's not acting like a human he'd be acting like what A cat. You can say it. You can then move your seats aside. The point is, as a human, um, yeah, eating donuts is good. It's great. But should you eat 12 donuts every morning? What's the problem? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Democracy in action. (laughs) I actually agree with you, but... What's the problem if we do nothing but eat donuts?
2: Well, it's really bad for you. Because it's all the sugar and stuff.
1: Bingo. And what you've just done is understand something about... Uh, eternal law. I mean, we can understand physicality. Yes, donuts are okay, but not too many. Uh, Jesus turned water into what? Wine. Wine. And I'm just going to assert, you know, maybe wine's okay, but don't have three bottles of it for breakfast. It's just don't. It's not healthy. It's not good. But we can make those determinations. Whereas dogs don't sit around looking at each other saying, what is right? What is wrong? What's just? They just don't do that. At least, your, no, your dog doesn't do that. Okay. That's eternal law. A lot more can be said. Thomas, the second law, write this down, is divine law. And those are laws that come directly from God. I'll be really simple for once the Ten Commandments. The third law, our type of law is natural law. And that's what I'm gonna focus on in a moment. That's big and complicated, and if anyone, may I take this off? Oh, thank you. If anyone comes in here up to this desk and says, I can easily explain natural law in two minutes, run. <laughs> um, natural law. I'm going to assert that Socrates begins the conversation. He doesn't use the phrase natural law, but his student Aristotle does. Okay, the Stoics do. Uh, are you all familiar with Stoicism? I keep getting sidetracked.
0: They will be. <laughs> <If they were. laughs> We've touched on it this year. Um, several of the things that you're, you're mentioning here, with like Socrates and Aristotle, um, the, the bulk of the class will have next year and Antiquities, and they get Thomas Aquinas and uh, in Christendom and uh, Saint Augustine falls in both classes. Okay, so, okay. so this is a preview of next year if you're taking
1: Antiquities. There you go. Wow. Good. Thank you for previewing for me. I have to, may I do a footnote to history? We keep bouncing around though, Socrates, the Stoics, St. Augustine, St. Thomas. One of the famous Stoics out there, who was a you know, young man who was raised as a Stoic, his name was St. Paul. Mm-hmm. So when you read two thirds of the New Testament, echoing in the background are the Stoic thinkers. And I'm gonna assert, and I can't prove it, assert Socrates is way back there too. We'll let that sink in. Okay, natural law, are you ready? I haven't picked on you yet. I'm going to explain natural law in two minutes. Yeah. Okay. Um, natural law is what is discovered through the intellect, and it determines how we, ought, we humans ought to live. That's the simple answer. And we've already touched upon some examples. Don't eat donuts all the time. But natural law also determines what's right and what's wrong. And this is all connected to Martin Luther in the jail. Natural law teaches, if we can comprehend it, what laws are just, fill in the blanks, and what laws are, Blinders. you got it. The natural law tradition. Um, St. Thomas talks about that at length. And what I want to do in just a moment is tie what St. Thomas says, yes the Stoics, Aristotle and everyone else, the American founding. Before I do, here's number four on the list. Number four is really easy. Are you ready? The fourth type of law is positive law. That's really simple. That's man-made law. I'm going to give you I'll say a simple uh, example. Out here is 27, Martha Berry Highway, Martha Berry, <laughs> listen to me, I've lived here too long. Martha Berry Highway, what's the speed limit? 55. 50. 55. That speed limit was set by our fellow human beings, it could be 45 or it could be 105. But the speed limit was set at 55, you're still awake, why should we adhere to the speed limit?
2: So no one gets hurt?
1: Bingo. Because no one gets hurt. That's a great example of natural law. Because uh, natural law, we create laws that help protect life, liberty, and, say it, property. (laughs) Sorry, that's John Locke. So can the speed limit be changed? Sure. Should you break the law? No, because it's problematic. I mean, you shouldn't. Um, You know, there are occasions when, yeah, the fire truck has to go 70. Or whatever, the ambulance. Okay. Okay. Uh, Positive laws are made by human beings, and here's the big key. According to all these people we've been talking about, and according to Martin Luther King, positive laws, man-made laws, need to reflect eternal, natural, and divine laws. You can take a nap now, if you understand that. I'll repeat that. Positive laws need to reflect and embody eternal, natural, and uh, divine laws. Sun's out again. I'm glad you're in the back. I'm gonna pick on you, may I? What if we the people, fifty-one percent of us, decide that you are fellow human being, eh, we don't really like you. We're gonna put you in chains and make you our slave.
2: Alright, so we wanna do it, <laughs>
1: <laughs> getting donuts, too. The point is, is it right or wrong for us to enslave you or put, uh, make women second-class citizens? Yes or no? Your opinion. Because it, it, that sort of law, slavery, uh, does not reflect divine law, eternal law. Um, you see how this is tying together in, uh, when King talks about just and unjust law? Okay. Um, trust me, there's a conclusion here. I want to tie all this just for a moment to who we are as a people. We happen to be living in a place called Carrollton, Georgia, and Georgia is a part of the United States. And what Cain explicitly does, and this is for you, I thought about you when I was crafting these thoughts in my head, what he explicitly does is tie all these various strands of thought together and focuses on the American founding. And what he's going to do sitting in the Birmingham jail is celebrate the American founding What he's going to do is say that the laws regarding segregation, pertaining to segregation, uh, are contrary to the American founding, to the Constitution and the Declaration, and that's the punchline. I'll repeat that. What King is going to argue is that laws that segregate blacks from whites, and go to a different drinking fountain, those laws are contrary to the Declaration and the Constitution. Because they're contrary to the Declaration of the Constitution, he is morally obliged, here it is, to break the law. He's morally obliged to demonstrate through Birmingham, without a permit, not cause violence, but to demonstrate the goal is to raise awareness among other citizens about the unjustness of the laws pertaining to segregation. I'll repeat that. He's demonstrating to people throughout the rest of the United States that those laws are fundamentally wrong and need to be changed. I'm going to need to focus on the founding for a moment. What King is going to do is celebrate the Declaration, I'm sorry, Zoom, and the Constitution, and before this is over, we're going to talk about how there are a lot of people out there today just scattered throughout the United States Who argue that the American founding is flawed? The Constitution is flawed because it was pro slavery, they argue. The Declaration was flawed. King is arguing, no, they're not. I'm just telling you, there's two different opinions here. You have to decide. Um, But let me just read this, and you might have heard, you've been so gracious, still awake. You might have heard this before. This is uh, written in 1776. Uh, I'm going to do it by discussing or talking about natural law. And what natural law says, and this is his conclusion at the tail end of the Declaration, is that natural law requires you, requires you to have a revolution, to separate yourselves from England. This is Schaeffer's term, way of putting it. What Jefferson is arguing is that American citizens, excuse me, the citizens living in North America in 1776 were morally obliged pick up guns and have a revolution. They were morally obliged to break the law." Okay. King makes specific reference to this and I just want to add one more thing. Just You don't have to write this down because you probably have it memorized. When Jefferson talks about natural law, the laws of nature and nature's God, he gives five examples of natural law. And in American government class at West Georgia when I torture students every semester, I make them memorize at least some of the five natural laws, at least two out of the five. Are you ready? Please say yes. Someone say yes. yes. Thank you. We hold these truths, natural laws, to be self evident, and this is the one we're all familiar with that all men are created equal. And that is both a teaching from the Greeks, it's also a teaching from Revelation. We're all equal before God. If we're all equal before God, then the laws have to reflect that equality. And he goes on to talk about inalienable rights, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the fifth natural law teaching, I'm repeating myself, is if you're in a government or society or in Birmingham and the laws do not adhere to, if the positive laws do not embody natural law, then you're morally obliged to break the law. So what King is doing is tying together all these just various strands of, all of the Western tradition. Okay, Whew. lots been happening here. Uh, let me just jump ahead. Ooh. I'm just going to throw this out. He ties the three traditions together and says that he's obliged to break the law. But then what he also says, um, let me try to find it, y'all help me find it. Made so many notes here, and this is this is what he adds. That's I think new and different that I had never heard before. Uh, what he says is, yes, we were supposed to break the law, uh, have a demonstration without a permit, um, but then uh, submit to the penalty. Where is that? I'll tell you in a moment. Oh. All right, we'll find it later. I'm going to repeat myself. What he says, and this is the key teaching in his letter, is demonstrate without a permit, get arrested, but willingly go to jail. Why? In order to make other people aware of the injustice. And I'm going to just add this as a historical footnote. King was remarkably successful. Someone named John F. Kennedy paid attention. Congress in the United States paid attention and eventually, or soon, passed civil rights legislation. Um, the media paid attention. A lot of people paid attention, and uh, segregation was eventually abolished. Okay. Um, ah. I'm going to just pause for one. Do you have any questions? Is there anything I said that's really confusing or weird? Well, I'm hard to you. How about you? I think I'm good we've got to understand law, we've got to celebrate the American founding, so he says, we've got to break the law peacefully, but we also have to submit to the penalty. What I want to do is get sidetracked for a moment because this is an ongoing conversation today, here, throughout the world. I'm going to assert that King's argument is really solid, but it only it only worked in the United States back then. What am I getting at? Uh, if you were living in Nazi Germany, uh, 1938, and the Nazis come banging on your door and say, do you have any Jews hidden in your attic? What are you supposed to do? Say no. No, you lie, and God will support you. I'm asserting that. Or in Cuba, if you know, they want to take away your property, do what you can to keep the government, push the government back. But in the United States, King was arguing you could peacefully demonstrate uh, in the United States was such that most likely or hopefully the laws would change for the better okay Um, uh, let me get sidetracked again as King raises this excuse me a moment Uh, allergies not COVID allergies King at the tail end of the speech you find it I want to talk about two more things. Oh, page four. This is to stir up Ms. Goff. <laughs> page four, the first formal paragraph. Ms. Goff, would you just start reading it? Just the first sentence. Uh, there at the top. You spoke?
0: Okay, oh, the first book. You spoke of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. First,
1: oh, okay. Just um, that one? No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I cut you off. I'm, 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 I'm.
0: At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. I started thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency made up of Negroes who as a result of long years of oppression have been so completely drained of self-respect and a sense of somebodyness that they have adjusted to segregation and on the other hand of a few negroes in the middle class who because of a degree of academic and economic security and because at points they profit by segregation have unconsciously <coughs> become insensitive to the problems of the masses the other force Is one of bitterness and hatred that comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up over the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim Movement.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. So you've got some people who are just complacent about segregation, um, others who just are middle class, they just don't care. What he does here in this section of the letter is address Malcolm X. Martin Luther King, I'm stressing this for the fourth time, says, "Break the law, but then submit to the penalty." What he is doing is disagreeing with Malcolm X. He and Malcolm X went head-to head, so to speak, in the '60s, regarding how do you deal with segregation. And I'm just pointing this out as a historical fact because we still see it today in Portland and elsewhere. Let me uh, Have you already spoken about Malcolm X? Oh,
0: yeah, we had that in our homework last night. We've not talked about it in class yet.
1: Well, may I then for a moment? Oh,
0: absolutely. Take
1: it away. Let me do the hemlock once more. I'm just trying to connect what King was arguing here with what's happening outside these, these walls today. Uh, I'm just going to quote Malcolm X. Um, ah. Malcolm X, in 1963, publishes an essay. And he criticizes Martin Luther King. When Martin Luther King failed to desegregate Albany, Georgia, the civil rights struggle in America reached its low point. King became bankrupt almost as a leader. Plus, even financially, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was in financial trouble. And he goes on to say that King was kind of useless and didn't get anywhere. But he, Malcolm X, has a solution. And I'm going to read it to you. This is what he wrote. First of all, what Malcolm X did was say, I reject Christianity. He was a Muslim. And I'm going to quote him. There's nothing in our book, the Koran, you call it Koran, that teaches us to suffer peacefully. Our religion teaches us to be intelligent, peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts his hand on you, send him to the cemetery. That's a good religion. That's a, in fact, that's an old-time religion. That's the one mom and Pa used to talk about. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a head for a head, a life for a life. If someone passes laws regarding segregation, start shooting. King and Malcolm X went off in very different directions. Why do I stress this for the second or third time? Because this debate is still out there. Should demonstrators burn down buildings, homes, Start shooting. Um, And that's what we, the people, all of us, have to figure out. What does King argue? No, don't don't, demonstrate, no violence. Because violence, he argues, perpetuates violence. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up for now. Because I'm going to look at my clock, if I may. Yeah. And we'll have a short break, and you'll probably flee. Yeah, I'm going to cause some trouble because I want to. And this connects to what's going to happen either this afternoon, next month, or later this year. I almost promise it, what's going to happen here in America. Um, 30 years ago, one of us is getting old, not you. 30 years ago, a lawyer from a place called Georgia was nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States, Mr. Clarence Thomas. And he went up to the Senate and, and, of course, had to be interviewed by the United States Senate as to whether or not he should serve on the Supreme Court. And eventually he was, he was confirmed. But Clarence Thomas gets to the Senate, and a number of people there argued, oh, no, we don't like Clarence Thomas, and they you know, accused him of this or that, being conservative or whatever, being an originalist. We'll talk about that next week. But the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee did something unusual. Not only did he argue from the Senate floor— that Clarence Thomas was unworthy to be a candidate, don't put him on the bench. This, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee went out of his way to publish an article in the Washington Post, and you can find it later. And the article is really critical of Clarence Thomas, and what the article essentially said is, we should never put people like Clarence Thomas on the bench. You got this? The author of the article, let's see, I'll find his name, Joe Biden, Oh, oh, Lord. And what I want to do is an interesting article. Um, what Mr. Biden does, and I'm trying to tie all this together, is argue that Clarence Thomas' understanding of natural law is fundamentally wrong. And you do have to go read the article, just to be fair to Mr. Biden. But what he says is, I made notes here um, this is Biden talking in the Washington, writing the Washington po- uh, Post. He says, does Judge Thomas see natural law as a moral code, or does he understand it to be a protector of personal freedom? I will translate this. Joe Biden, in this article, argues that he, think he agreed, believes in natural law, but he argues that natural law is something that is articulated and created by human beings. It's not something exterior to us that we try to discover through the intellect. We, the people, create natural law. We, the democracy, decide what's right or wrong do women have rights, can they vote, yes or no? Yes, Yes, very good. It's because we the people said so. We said so. And what Biden goes on to argue is the problem with uh, Clarence Thomas is that he keeps looking at these outside moral codes. Revelation. And those moral codes are gonna limit your freedom. It's all about freedom. Um, Biden continues. Natural law reasoning must be dynamic, capable of change. So what is natural law? It tells us how to live, at least for today, and tomorrow it'll be something else. And next week it'll be something else. Um, OK, I could go on and on. But what Biden essentially argues is that modern America is changing. In the old days, we believed in property rights. Is that? is that? What is that? I'm stating this from you. What is this? So Whose is it? <laughs> no, it's ours, because we've evolved. This belongs to us. you got any money? No. It's too bad. What Biden argues is that in the old days, yeah, that was your pen, uh, that was your checkbook, and he's not arguing for socialism with a capital S. But what he's saying is property rights are evolving, and we need to share it more. Right? Don't worry about what some moralistic teacher from Georgia has to say. Let's decide uh, uh, what the future. Let's decide as a people how we're going to redistribute the wealth. I'm going to add this and then pause. Mr. Biden will get to replace, of course, we'll get to nominate the next Supreme Court justice. Mr. Thomas, whether you support him or not, is 81 years old. And so my assertion is that today, tomorrow, next year, either Clarence Thomas or someone else will retire from the bench, and it's Mr. Biden who's going to lead the way. He gets to nominate that person. And I guarantee, I promise this, it'll be front-page news. And all I'm trying to do is tell you that in the background is natural law. How to, how to understand ourselves as moral human beings, uh, whether we're just truly evolutionary, echoing Darwin, or whether there's some standard exterior to us that we have to understand. Martin Luther King argues that there's a standard exterior to us and it ain't easy to comprehend, it ain't easy to understand, but yet we have to do it as a people. I'm going to pause there for a moment. I'm done. That's yes, great.
0: Right. Thank you. All right. uh, There we go. Uh, So I'm gonna have Dr. Schaefer uh, come back up. Um, He's got a couple other like floating pieces uh, uh, to to pull in some uh, very interesting quotes that he was sharing with me uh, during the break. And also hopefully um, we can get a discussion going with you guys because I think just in the snippet and it was a very quick tour uh, that he gave you in the first half of class, that this affects law, this affects the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that we've been seeing over the last several months. And it also is a really good reminder that as out of the blue as some of this has seemed over the you know past 12, 13 months, it's really not. We were talking during the break and I said, uh, this is sort of like when we talk about Woodrow Wilson in the 1890s as a college student, writing a paper about how the constitutional constitution is itself unconstitutional and should be done away with because it's quote outdated and he started that debate in the 1800s so the idea of oh well the constitution's outdated we should get rid of it this is not a new debate it's been around for over a hundred years and then you know we see things you know going down the pipeline with the current administration and and just the whole fiasco over the election itself, and then you realize that our current president was writing such articles within that kind of law context 30 years ago. If certain things start to make you know a lot more sense, it's not as out of the blue or as spontaneous as it may seem. You know, for somebody who's just you know scrolling through the, the doom scrolling on their phone, you know, getting the headlines. Um, doom scrolling that's like my new favorite term I like that. yeah um, so uh, dr. Schaefer um, you uh, want to share with him a couple of other things that you said you pulled out and again I want y'all to speak up ask questions because uh, this is a really great opportunity to um, talk through some of this with someone who can help us really put all of this in context All
1: right. Just for like two more minutes. And my goal is not to pick on the current president, but to show what the big debate is and why it will be a big issue sometime this year or next year regarding the Supreme Court nomination and public policy and executive orders. Uh, But you mentioned uh, Woodrow Wilson. That's really important. And someone who agreed with Wilson was Justice Holmes, who was on the Supreme Court for years. And he essentially argued, "Ah, natural law is out of date. Don't, you know, get over it. And that we, the people, have to decide what's right or wrong. Quote that I have permission to repeat, and then I'm really going to stir something up, is from the 1992 court case Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and this is where the court, the majority, slim majority, uh, supported uh, abortion or continued to support abortion. But what the Sanderdale, excuse me, what the authors argued uh, in 1992, and this kind of sums up everything, the big debate. What they argue is at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. Beliefs about these matters should not, could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state, meaning you get to decide what's right or wrong. Don't worry about some natural law theorists or philosophers or theologians, you get to decide. So it's a loaded statement, and that will be the debate down the line.
0: Well, and I feel like that's even in a debate currently because if you're defining your own your your own existence, then this is where we get gender on a spectrum, and this is yeah. where we get you know you know my truth is not the same thing as your truth. You do you, and I'll do me. It, it's you know again you know all of this has sort of you know become very visible over the last five, seven, ten years, and. It's, there's nothing new under the sun. This is a a debate that was spelled out then when only a certain slice of America was paying attention and now that thought has sort of, you know, percolated through the whole culture and it's popping up in more than just court cases. It's in how we define ourselves and we've become a nation of one under ourselves.
1: May I throw two things out? Please. You're very clear. I hope you heard her. This, by the way, this issue, so to speak, was raised in book one of Plato's Republic. (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: Socrates is having a friendly conversation with a local influential person named Thrasymachus. And Socrates kept, you know, Thrasymachus argues, oh, we define our own existence. Your job is to figure out how you can prevail over everyone else. To heck with them. Right? How can you make money and you know, get power and glory? And who gives a darn? I'm using the right word about anyone else. And Socrates pushed back. Thrasymachus got mad at Socrates. It's kind of a fun, kind of fun part of the Republic. Thrasymachus almost d- does this. And he's pushed back. But the point is, that same argument has been around since day one. Okay. One more comment. I really want to stir things up. May I, with your permission? Miss Earle, while I'm mumbling for just 45 seconds. uh, Type in the Journal of Oxford Ethics. I'm doing this from memory. The Journal of Oxford Ethics. Here we go. After birth abortion. It's an article that appeared a few years back in the Journal of Oxford, the Oxford Journal of Ethics. Not in a crazy KKK website, but in Oxford. What the two scholars argue, and they're from Europe, Uh, is that we get to define our own existence and that women should not be burdened by children if they don't choose to be. And what they argue is that after-birth abortion should be permissible. What is after-birth abortion? I'm just repeating what they argue in this journal is that if a woman has a child and then decides a few months later, it's too much of a burden on me. And I'm just telling you the truth. Children are a burden. You know, they talk, they eat, they sleep, they constantly cry. You should have the right, a woman should have the right to do an afterbirth abortion, kill it. If you have a child and it has any type of health issues or mentally retarded, you should have the right to kill it. And the state shouldn't get in your way. And what they conclude is, and again, I'm not making this up, is that the child has no rights up until the age of approximately 18 months. If the child can look back at the mother and say clearly, don't kill me, then it has rights to live. If it can't say that, that's what's being argued in Europe. Okay, I'm done. Please.
0: Yep. And isn't that um, what you talk about in uh, antiquity, about the abandonment walls for infanticide in ancient Greece? Yeah. An right. actual the father had the right to literally raise up the child Until he did, the child was a non-person, and they could do whatever they liked—toss it to the dogs, Mm -hmm. leave it at the abandonment wall.
1: Wasn't there a saint whose thing was Basil? Yeah, who rescued like hundreds of uh, abandoned children and raised them. We talked extensively
2: about Basil um, in the
1: Christmas year. Okay.
0: that wraps it up for this episode thanks so much and we'll see you next time